0: Our scripture reading today comes from Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. Hear the Word of God. So from now on, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view. We know Him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy One, we remember in this time and space, this is not a place set apart from you. You are here, not just in this church, but always in our lives. May we become more aware of your presence, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be a pleasing offering unto you, for you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. As I'm about to take our confirmands to a confirmation retreat next weekend, I'm reminded of my own confirmation journey, where I learned a little bit about The Presbyterian Church and how we believe that we really hear the revelation of God through scripture. And that in our denomination, we've tried to figure out what that scripture means for our lives through the Book of Order, which is more about how we do church and structure the church. And through the Book of Confessions, which is a series of creeds and statements of belief. And of course, learning them in confirmation, being the nerd that I was, I was really excited. There are lots of creeds that we've accepted over the years as a denomination, the most recent of which is from 1990, the Brief Statement of Faith, and if you're bored today, you can open the front of your hymnal and read it. It's a really good one. But when I got to my first church, my first call to pastor, I would throw in these affirmations of faith after scripture, as people have been doing in worship for now thousands of years. There was a problem. People were just bored just bored. They wouldn't care. They'd yawn. They'd sleep. It could have been because I was just done preaching, but it seemed like there was something more problematic. These creeds, as they're called, outline sort of the, the tradition of the church, our historic belief in God as Trinity, the nature of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit. But as I've now come back to doubling down on the words of Jesus as the center of my faith. I'm beginning to notice peculiar things about what is said in them. So in the Nicene Creed, the longer of the two most ancient creeds we have, it says, for us and our salvation, Jesus came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. And then later on, it talks about his death and resurrection. But in the theories of atonement that I was taught growing up and in college, an evangelical school, salvation was only about what happened once Jesus died. But the creed puts that, for us in our salvation part, at the very beginning of the Jesus story. So could it be that the faith that I was taught and that the Orthodox Church critiques us for focuses too much on legal categories of transaction, God's life for my life, and not enough on the orthodox idea of salvation as theosis, becoming more in the likeness of Jesus. And then as I've begun to focus on the parables and those words of Jesus and Jesus' interesting obsession with the kingdom of God, he mentions it more than anything else in the Gospels. I was pointed by Richard Rohr to the Apostles' Creed, which is also in the front of your hymnal, It's probably the earliest ecumenical creed we have. And it says that Jesus was, quote, born of the Virgin Mary, comma, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Do you notice what the creed said about Jesus' life? Nothing, nothing, zero, zilch. This is often referred to as the great comma, because in that comma, Jesus jumps from seven pound ten ounce baby Jesus to the day he's crucified. So why would this be? This doesn't seem like a small oversight. The contents of the gospels are such that in the Gospel of Matthew, that great comma is twenty three of the twenty eight chapters, and Mark it's thirteen out of sixteen, and Luke it's nineteen out of twenty four, and John it's only eleven out of twenty one. But all of those chapters are dedicated to that great comma of Jesus' life. So why don't the ancient councils give it parallel credence to the statements that they put in there? The answer is power and reconciliation. In Paul's letter to the church in Corinth that we just read, Paul is beckoning the people of God to be reconciled to God. But reconciliation, as we all know, is tough work. It requires that wrongs be righted, apologies be made, forgiveness offered and shared, that imbalances and segregations disappear. And, and this is the hardest part, that power be given away and willfully received. Remember, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. All things are made new. But it's the nature of that newness, that new creation, that salvation that's been warped since the Council of Nicaea. Warped in such a way that it's played a similar understanding and our understanding of salvation in America and the slaveholding religion that many of us inherited. Because it really is all about power. Increasingly, I've learned that in places and times when religions of any kind, but especially Christianity, has been a tool that has been primarily interpreted by those in power, the traditions become spiritualized, otherworldly, mostly focused on the eternal, personal beliefs, inner purity before a deity. It's a skate-hatch religion. Now compare that to the overwhelming portions of the Gospels, that great comma, which focus on Jesus and his message and the kingdom of God and a present tense social ethic invoked by the parables like the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the landowners, when Jesus responds to the rich young ruler and all those rebuttals to the Pharisees who did not like the implications of Jesus' Torah-breaking, Sabbath-busting acts of resistance. Jesus is resisting power, shaming that Roman centurion who makes you carry his stuff for a mile by saying you're going to walk the extra mile, shaming that Sadducee or Pharisee who slaps you with the one hand and then you turn the other cheek to make them slap you with their, with their uh, wiping hand, if you will. This is humiliation and making a folly of those who wield power in ungodly ways. And you know who doesn't like critiques of power? Totalitarians. Whether it's slaveholders in America or emperors of Rome. And who do you think called together the first eight ecumenical councils of the church? Today, that would be the Pope. But back then, it was the Roman emperors. The Roman emperors called together the first eight ecumenical church councils. The ones with the most to lose from a Christian social ethic that critiques power. And the theology reflects that. That's why there's a great comma. Reconciliation to God in those statements is almost entirely spiritualized. So much than the 1800s in America, you could honestly tell your slave to abide by the church's creeds without having to worry about the contents of the comma. Now we are today trying to reconcile reconciliation because we've inherited a faith that emphasizes belief over action. And we've played into those philosophies of the era of the Roman Empire where they thought that anything spiritual was good and anything on earth, flesh, was profane. Because in Platonic philosophy, if you can figure out the spiritual realm, well, that's the good stuff. And all the stuff down here was just sort of a a side job until we get to the good stuff. As long as you believe the right ideas, it doesn't really matter as much what you do with those ideas. They're less important. Now, this is not all wrong. Don't hear me saying that. God's grace is an invisible grace, a spiritual force, a power that overcomes any sin that you and I can contrive. And we are entrepreneurs pour excellence when it comes to figuring out new ways to sin. These aren't lies or falsehoods we're talking about. We're talking about a twisting of the facts, an interpretation, a new hermeneutic about the nature of who Jesus is. This Jesus that we claim to believe in. So what is a belief in Jesus that will lead us to reconciliation? Well, back in Chalcedon, another one of those church councils, remember, there are a lot. In 451, the emphasis was on determining the true nature of Jesus Christ. Was Jesus a God who wore a costume of flesh? That's Sibelianism, by the way, that particular heresy. So no. Was Jesus a a person who was granted at his baptism by John a sort of God brain, a God consciousness? Well, they didn't like that either. They called that Nestorianism, and that was called heretical and anathematized as well. There's a lot of anathematization going on in these early councils. If you don't believe the right thing, you're kicked out. And There's a whole lot of other heretical isms that didn't make it in, But what they did end up saying was that Jesus is, quote, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man of a rational soul and a body, consubstantial with the Father as regards his divinity, and the same consubstantial with us as he regards his humanity. They really cared about the substance. They really wanted Jesus to make sure he was of the same substance. Of God. That was a big thing in the ancient world. So they set forth this belief that Jesus was both God and human at the same time. And we still honor that today. Every Sunday we don't have communion. Notice there will be two candles on the communion table where we honor the divine and the human nature of Jesus. But the sort of breakthrough of this council was that Jesus reconciled the divine and the earthly all at once. Codifying what was said in Colossians that God wanted all fullness to be found in Christ. All things to be reconciled through him and for him. And that message was overtaken by this overly spiritual message that we have received through the centuries. A message that God cared more about rescuing us from this world than what was going on in this realm. Richard Rohr talks about the problem like this. He says, we are unable to comprehend that Christ is our wholeness, set forth for all to imagine, trust, imitate, and comprehend. Christ is the exemplar of reconciled humanity, the stand-in for all of us. At this wondrous level, Christianity is hardly a separate religion, but simply an organic and hopeful message about the nature of true reality. Christ is the microcosm of the macrocosm, the great coincidence of opposites, as Saint Bonaventure taught. Only the Jesus paradox gives us the permission and freedom to finally and fully love the paradox that everything already and always will be. So what was it that Jesus was reconciling, if not just getting us to heaven? My friends, here is the good news of the gospel. In Christ, God was reconciling the whole world. All of it. The whole nine yards. Yes, that beautiful day when humanity was created, but the other six days of creation as well. And we are now entrusted with that holistic, wholesome, cosmological reconciliation. Jesus did die for our sins. We could call it a transaction, but also that in Christ, God is working at reconciling all things into the vision of that beautiful kingdom of God, the obsession of Jesus described to us in the Gospels and then painted for us at the end in Revelation. This is possible because Jesus reconciled even our ideas of the separate realms. And bringing awareness of this unit of nature by exposing true reality. I always thought that heaven was someplace else. Someplace else that doesn't exist here. But when you look at the scriptures, the way it ends, and you think through Jesus' words, you realize that the sacred is already here. Holiness is just a breath away. God doesn't show up just when we beg and pray for a miracle. God is already in the midst of all reality. That was the work of the reconciling Christ. As Marcus Borg puts it, spirituality is becoming conscious of and intentional about a deepening relationship with God. Because spirituality is about becoming aware of a relationship that already exists. Here and now. My friends, we aren't Platonists. We don't believe in a spiritual realm and an earthly realm. We believe in a God who reconciles those because we believe in a Christ who reconciled divinity and the earth. We know this is the arc of scripture because if you remember Genesis, there is a garden and there's a tree. And the tree sets us down a bad path. But in that garden, God was dwelling with us. And then you go to the end of the book. There's another tree. And there God is dwelling with the people again, but this time with a city. A city, a new Jerusalem that is to have come down and to be with the people. I don't know what you've been told, but heaven is coming down to this world, according to the book of Revelation. And that is good news. Because reconciliation then through that picture, that framework is an integration. Some think of reconciliation as what you do with your bank statement. Maybe some of you are going to go home and correct what you got with your checks and making sure the numbers line up. But it's not about erasure. It's more like weaving. As Noni mentioned, our beautiful knitting work team, when they put those different threads in, and we say this in the blessing of those blankets, if you pull one thread out, it weakens the whole fabric. Reconciliation is about integration. We learned this from Derek Musgrove a couple weeks ago. uh, talked about his book, Chocolate City. He reminded us that down at Friendship Heights, the community was majority black. And then the Chevy Chase Land Company came in, and using the power of eminent domain with the government they helped control, helped move everybody out. And now Friendship Heights is what it is today. Reconciliation is integration, because without all the parts, we are made less whole. We know from research that cities that are able to be racially and economically interwoven, that when these groups that are often segregated are interwoven together, the economy of those cities are healthier. They're more resilient in the face of social pressures. And surprise, surprise, there's less crime in those cities. This is not a coincidence. Christ is showing us that the whole nature of this place is reconciliation and integration. When we're all woven together, we're all better off. And we know now that interwoven generations are healthier too. We live in a culture that has segregated everyone out by age so much, but we know from the educational and developmental psychologists across the world that this is taking a toll on us. And the faith researchers have discovered the same thing. Faith is more caught than taught. This means you need to still learn alongside your peers. You need a good Sunday school class or a good small group. But we also have to spend even more time interacting with those people of faith who are older than us and younger than us, from different generations and stages of life. People are starting to figure this out. This is why you see a skyrocketing rate In the amount of retirement communities that are built with preschools on the first floor. Because they're finding that the people there, by a whole slew of metrics, are living longer and having healthier lives. My friends, today after worship, we get to embody this kind of reconciliation by integration. We may be separated by distance or by prison walls, but that will not stop us from highlighting the reconciling work of Jesus Christ in this world. You'll be able to write cards to those who live far away. You'll be able to decorate a poster for a tap client that you may not be able to see who is here during the week, to share that love and to build that bridge, to write on the poetry of prison inmates who would love to connect with people no matter how far how far away they are. My friends, God was in Christ reconciling the world to God's self, and we are now the ambassadors entrusted with that message of reconciliation. For the many State Department workers here, you know we cannot do very good work of reconciliation and peace unless we go into the neighborhoods and build relationships. So my friends, may we take up our tools May we be reconciled, friends in faith, and participate with the one who goes ahead of us, building the infrastructure for the kingdom of God as we follow along. Thanks be to God, and amen.